This is the Leaders Who Learn podcast, produced by Claremont Lincoln University. This podcast highlights the dimensions of leadership urgently needed today, the collaboration necessary for leading well, and the ways to tap the leader within each of us. Interviews showcase ethical and humble leaders who listen, learn, and build a legacy of gratitude, service, and transparency in their businesses and communities. Our hosts, Dr. Joanna Bauer and Dr. Lynn Pretty get into the specifics with each guest, and we ask questions that need to be answered about ethical leadership and leading in today's society. Now, let's hear from our hosts. So Bill Massey from Sasaki, a principal architect, I'm so glad you were able to stay on for uh, delve into some detail because I want to get into your specialty. Um, which is sports, recreation, wellness, and student life facilities. Um, but first, I have to ask you a question that, uh, based on something in the podcast that just really surprised me. I had actually assumed transportation, you know, cars, trains, planes, uh, were the big consumers of energy. Um, but I learned from you that actually buildings themselves consume more than 50% of energy. And that was a surprise. I, I, I'm not understanding that. Can Can we... Can buildings be reduced to net zero? Is that the point of lead? What's the goal? Help me understand it. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're at a really interesting time when it comes to the building industry. So if you think about buildings, um, and we are, you know, the population is rising very quickly. I think it's, uh, you know, we're 7 billion today. We're going to be 10 billion in 20 years. Um, and I mean, that's just a, a massive jump when you think about it. And there's a, there's a huge um, push for uh, m- most of those people between now and 2040 are going to be living in urban environments. So the construction industry is, you know, going at an amazing clip to keep pace with that. And it has been for the last few decades. Um, so if you think about, you know, what it takes to build a building, it's not just the actual construction effort and the amount of energy it takes to build a building on a site. Um, it's, you know, the transportation of materials to that site. It's the manufacturing of those materials. And it's the amount of energy that a building uses to run day to day. So, you know, that's 50 to 60% of all the fossil fuels that we emit as a planet um, on a, a, any given time. Um, so there's a huge opportunity to make some inroads into reducing that just in the building industry alone. And, you know, you asked about um, net zero energy buildings. I'm so encouraged and enthusiastic about the fact that we are at this sort of precipice, I think, of making zero net energy buildings essentially commonplace. Um, A lot of college campuses have taken the mantle to uh, make a commitment to be, you know, essentially carbon neutral within a certain time frame, And that means a lot of their buildings are going to be zero net energy in order to achieve that. Um, you know, working with Princeton University right now, they have incredibly high sustainability um, aspirations. And they're working really hard on all the projects they're, that they're building or renovating to make sure that they are working uh, towards that commitment. Um, and it's, so it's an exciting time. Not, you know, not every institution has the resources that Princeton has, but a lot of institutions across the U.S. that we work with, regardless of, you know, sort of what their financial capacities are, 
um, understand the value of building sustainably um, and understand the value that, you know, from a financial standpoint, if they have a building that's pulling very little energy resources or through photovoltaics is um, able to offset whatever energy use they have, that, you know, that helps their bottom line. They're not having to pay a lot of money for utility bills, um, which are likely to only go up as resources become more scarce. So, okay, I'm going to back up a bit. So can a building be carbon neutral in and of itself or to get that designation, does the supply chain that leads up to it, all that manufacturing, all of those other pieces that go into it, even, even the trucks that bring the materials, do those all have to be carbon neutral or net zero as well? Or is there, see what I'm no, asking? Well, so that's a, that's a great question. Yeah, because there, there are some nuances there. So for, for a building to be zero net energy, essentially over the course of a year, the building has to produce as much energy as it uses. So there may be certain times of the year and colder months where they need, the building needs more heat. It might be pulling energy that it's not able to, um, to source on its own through photo, typically photovoltaics, but there's geothermal, um, there's all sorts of, there's, there's wind power. So there's a lot of ways you can achieve it, but the most effective we have right now um, typically is photovoltaics. So that's the, when the building's operating moving forward. Okay. There, now there's also, we are also expanding the footprint and impact that a building has to take into account um, the life cycle costs of the, you know, the energy use that a brick requires to fabricate. So that is starting to become part of the equation, but, you know, sort of the, the formal definition of a zero net energy building is really about the, the amount of energy it uses on an annual basis. Um, not really all the energy it uses to create the building. It just, it, it's just really intriguing me because I had not really thought about the whole supply chain as kind of this whole new ecosystem of commitments to all elements of it being um, carbon neutral or net, net zero. Um, yeah. And, that, and yeah, I think, I think that, you know, so, so everybody's familiar with LEED. LEED has done a, you know, the, the Green Building Council has done an amazing job of making that essentially a mainstay of the, you know, the, uh, a metric that people can use to understand the impact that their building has um, from an energy and, and a resource use standpoint. Now we're getting into zero net energy certifications, which are doing, it's doing the same thing. And I think it's the next wave of sort of essentially the lead, what lead started and is continuing to do. Zero net energy is now sort of having its own certification programs. And there's other programs that, that do analyze life cycle impacts. So you're having to look at a much broader footprint of the impact that your building has in order to achieve, the, achieve these certifications. So I think the more, Maybe um, the ins institutions or corporations um, who are on the front line and really pushing the envelope are going to push for the higher certifications that are expanding the, the building impact and the understanding of what the building impact is. You know, there, some buildings have to create their own water, um, filter their own water and reuse their own water instead of actually having a water source, you know, to achieve certain certifications. So it extends beyond just the energy use. And so I think that's going to continue on. I think 
you know, I think we talked a little bit about codes and, and what the, the code requirements of buildings are today compared to 20 years ago. And in 20 years from now, I think the, the codes are going to be even more stringent in terms of what we can and can't do um, to create a code compliant building in terms of energy use and energy sourcing. The, the other thing I'll note is the great thing is that the brick manufacturers are now taking it upon themselves to create the lowest impact energy life cycle um, costs essentially to manufacturing their bricks. So if, if we're specifying a brick from a manufacturer that's environmentally responsible and has their own certifications proving that, that helps us achieve the certifications we need to get on our building. So the, the hard work and the legwork is now being done by um, a lot of the material sources, the material manufacturers that we, that we work with, and that's expanding rapidly. Well, the, the access to those manufacturers used to be just a, um, a select few. Now it's very commonplace for them to be having their own certifications that help us achieve the certifications for a building. Yeah, I, I'm listening, and I just can't. Im I just can't imagine the amount of education and training that has to go on for average everyday workers and even and even leaders of businesses to even think this way. It's got to be boggling. So, um, when you go into a project now, do you just select projects with people who are already in the know, or how much of the time are you actually persuading people into sustainability? Um, and really facilitating almost social change. Yeah, so that's interesting because no, um, you know, we're, we're a business and we are always, you know, looking for partners that we think are well aligned with, you know, our philosophy, but that's, that's not always the case. I mean, sometimes we are educating our clients in terms of the value, the benefits of building a sustainable building. And, you know, I'm, Hey, I, I come from a standpoint of being a skeptic sometimes, you know, tomorrow from, you know, as our sustainability director comes to me and says, Hey, I, you know, I understand you're working on this new project. It has to be zero net energy. Well, my response isn't, you're right. Let's make sure that happens. It's why tell me why, it's because I have to convince our client that we have to do the same, you know, we have to be um, achieving a zero net energy building. I can't just say we have to do it because it's the right thing. And she and I can sit down and say, okay, let's talk about the data that supports the benefits of doing this in terms of um, occupant health, in terms of long-term economic benefits, in terms of minimal operational impacts, um, and, and even in terms of what is it going to cost to achieve that zero net energy today. But yes, there's a premium. But over the next 15 years, you'll recoup that investment. And then from the rest of the, the lifespan of the building, you're essentially um, achieve, uh, creating or, or, or um, what's the word I'm looking for? You're, you're benefiting from that lower cost uh, over time. So it, it, it's sort of this long-term financial benefit that you may not think about in the short term. You, you had asked a question earlier about um, how do you think about things uh, beyond, you know, the next three to five years, and you're thinking about things from a decade standpoint, and that's very, a very hard mindset to get people into. And what I've learned in my profession as an architect 
is that patience is, you know, it's a, it's a commodity. Patience is a very hard thing to sort of understand and appreciate um, until you've gone through the process of um, designing a building, which can take a year or more, building a building, which can take about two years, and then seeing the building occupied and functional. Um, and that, you know, that's a year to two years to five years just to see how the building's actually functioning in the way that you intended it to. And oftentimes the clients that we work with have been planning for these buildings, you know, five, yeah. 10, yeah. or even more years. So right. that's a, that's a 15, you could, you could, you could easily say it's a 15 year enterprise to consider a building, fund the building, hire a designer, hire a contractor, and then um, actually occupy the building. And, um, and that I've learned in my career takes a, an incredible amount of patience and what you appreciate on the other side of that is the amount of the millions of decisions that went into and the milestones that you had to get through and over to actually make that building a reality. If you think about the number of people from the architect and the engineer to the contractor, to the client, to the users, to the donors, to the people 15 years ago that did a master plan that said, this is a building that we need. It, it's an amazing amount of, it is mind boggling. It's over, almost overwhelming to say, how could we ever even like build a building? Like how can, how is that even achievable when you think of the millions of decisions and sort of milestone points that, that had to be, you know, achieved and, and surpassed in order to actually get a building built and then but it happens right it, it happens and when you're on the other side of it you understand how it happens but if you were to put down on paper before you actually did a master plan you might say I don't think this is possible it's too overwhelming let's let's just not do this um, but I think when you start to look at a long-term prospect you appreciate that it is actually quite achievable and, and there's a simplicity of how achievable it is once you kind of put it in a context of a broader scale consideration. Yeah, it, that it's interesting. It brings out all sorts of pieces of leadership, but I'm going to, I'm going to shift gears on you right now. And yep. because COVID has put the kibosh on a whole bunch of plans for building <laughs> and yet, yep. and yet you have been a pretty big advocate for um, sports recreation, wellness and student life facilities. And, and them staying open during COVID. And so why is that? What, what are you thinking? Or is it that they've just been forgotten? I just caught a clip of a post that you had. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, I have some really strong opinions about this and they're based, they're based on um, a lot of research and a lot of um, uh, knowledge and, and consideration that's gone into wellness and the value and benefits of recreation, especially in higher ed. I mean, actually, not even in higher ed. If you, if there, there's a lot of great books and articles written about the um, the educational benefits, the uh, wellness benefits of um, fitness. Essentially, um, just an active lifestyle. And if you start with kids, um, you know, nutrition, wellness, uh, you know, a, a reasonable active lifestyle, the focus that students have in the classroom. The, um, the impact on their grades, the um, impact on their um, intellectual um, stimulation and growth, the impact on their actual interest and um, the well-being, their, their, their just mental state of well-being. 
um, is all very, very positive, right? So we should be championing this every chance we get. Um, and we all know that the world of higher ed has become, um, there's a, it's a pressure cooker. Um, even high schools now, you know, it's, it, the, the high school students are feeling pressure um, for achievement. College students are feeling pressure for achievement. And the outlets that we're starting to see in higher ed are responding to that. So there's a, there's a lot more um, responsiveness to mental health programs. Uh, a lot of counseling programs on college campuses are growing exponentially. It's actually hard to keep up with demand, especially, especially since the stigma of, of going to see um, a therapist is, you know, gone down significantly. That used to be something people would kind of look sideways at, but now people are very open about um, mental health being at the same level of importance and value as physical health. Um, so I, I think right now in COVID, it's perfectly understandable that institutions are saying, how are we going to teach students, right? Like, how, how are we going to manage uh, a pandemic if there's an outbreak? Where do we, you know, where do we put people... Um, do we need to sequester certain students if, if this comes up? All that's understandable. But I, I believe that, and a lot of institutions are responding in kind, that there needs to be um, the same prioritization in making sure students have the same outlets for um, mental health and wellness as they would otherwise. So that means, you know, going through some, um, some gymnastics to open recreation centers um, to make sure students still have access to virtual counseling if, you know, if, they, if they want to. And it's amazing how creative recreation directors and athletic directors mm. have become in responding to this and finding ways to offer their programs virtually. You know, I think um, Peloton has sort of opened everybody's eyes to how exactly. effective yep interactive um, or even recorded um, fitness uh, programs can be, right? So the you used to think, oh, I can't take a yoga class online. Well, that's commonplace now. And recreation programs on college campuses, they still have all their fitness directors, their instructors, their recording programs or um, uh, letting students have virtual live program access. And it's incredibly, it's become really, really popular. So yes, they can open their facilities, but they have to space all their equipment out. They're repurposing their gym spaces to add equipment, um, which is in high demand. You know, today's students, you know, are on the treadmills a lot or the Olympic platforms, but that requires a lot of maintenance and cleaning um, and sort of changeover um, scheduling to make sure students still have access, but they're doing it. You know, I'm, I'm so impressed with the way institutions, higher ed has responded um, to this pandemic and trying to keep as many, you know, access points to students as possible. And, you know, those program directors and recreation athletics, they're so passionate. I love working with them and they're, they're, they've stepped up. They've really, they're doing some really interesting, creative, and innovative things to make sure students still have access to their, you know, as many of their programs as they can. You've been listening to the Leaders Who Learn podcast, produced by Claremont Lincoln University. We really appreciate your support. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please check out www.claremontlincoln.edu 
for more information about Claremont Lincoln University and our graduate degree programs. Until next time.